Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Welcome to a special episode of Yeah, That's Probably an Ad in conjunction with DNI TBD. I'm Ko M, community editor at Adweek and your co-host or single host today. I am 1.5 generation Asian American. What does that mean? It means I emigrated to the U.S. when I was just a child. I moved from South Korea with my family to the American territory of Guam. And I grew up with a mom who still isn't particularly fluent in English. But I also grew up watching a lot of MTV and eating a lot of gushers. So I grew up with many, many cultures, including the island culture. And now I reside on the East Coast of the U.S., May, as you may know, is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, and while we should celebrate our identity or identities every day, and not just during a designated time frame, what you'll hear from this special episode are a few intimate conversations with Judy Lee from Pinterest, Michelle Lee from Allure, who sits on Adweek's Advisory Council, and my college classmate, Bing Chen, formerly YouTube's Global Head of Creative Development and Management. We talk openly about our own experiences of racism, like how we didn't realize we were different, believe it or not, and why we are so passionate about the marketing and media space and trying to make a difference. I hope what you'll find and what you'll hear is thought-provoking and enlightening. Without further ado, here are our guests. I'm Judy Lee. I'm Korean-American, and I'm full of spicy ideas. I'm Michelle Lee, and I'm proud to be Asian-American. I'm Bing Chen, and my dream is to make everyone else's dreams come true. And now we are joined by Judy Lee, the head of experiential marketing at Pinterest. Judy, thank you so much for taking some time and chatting about all things diversity today. Great. I'm so glad to be here. Um, What's nice is that we met um, as mentee, myself and you, the mentor, and um, now I get to dive a little bit deeper with you, uh, which is amazing. Um, you know, I think it's great to to have a familiar 
uh, face um, in the marketing world, but also to have a mentor and a role model of sorts. So um, who who are your mentors and who do you kind of um, stay in touch with in the marketing world? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. I think I've been really lucky to have had a pretty long slate of strong, positive female role models um, in my career. But I will kind of readily admit that I haven't had a lot of folks who look like me um, to really be my mentor. And um, that is one of the kind of main reasons why I feel really committed to mentorship for um, women of color. And that's like one of the areas that I feel especially passionate about. And um, one of my favorite things about working with the Adweek crew is that kind of focus of um, the team on kind of inclusion overall. But I would say a lot of my mentorship has come from a long slate of powerful women that I've worked for in my entire career. And, you know, I've gotten tons of really good advice about, you know, how, how do we show up as leaders? How do we kind of lead and guide our own careers and really kind of taking control of that and having a lot of intention as we think about our own futures. Yeah. And thank you so much for, um, you know, really stepping up and seeing the need for that um, and, and really, you know, doing the work. And I'm sure that you've learned about a lot about yourself while you mentor others, right? Yeah, most definitely. And I think, you know, from my own history, you know, I'm the child of immigrants And so I didn't have a lot of like a lot of mentorship and guidance from my own parents. They were small business owners and uh, they barely speak English. And so I'm a Korean American who had come through and a lot of the guidance that I gave myself throughout my college career was really by myself. And it was really finding those resources, which is why, you know, that is so important to me, especially as I look for people who don't have parents that are in the professional world who don't have that kind of guidance, who don't have those connections. Because I think we all know that a lot of, um, you know, business is networking and connections and that ability to meet people. And so I think for me, you know, not having that, and when I reflect back on especially those early years, that was something I really craved and wanted. And, And not only that, but to also be able to see someone who looked like me going through that similar journey. Yeah, um, I think you and I uh, both share this, um, that our parents don't really have English as their first language. It's hard enough to explain to people what you do, much less when you have a language barrier. So do your parents know um, kind of what you do now um, in in the marketing world? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I'm laughing because, (laughs) you know, we have a lot of these conversations and every once in a while I ask my mom, I'm like, do you know what I do? And so she, she doesn't. Her answer is usually like, you work on the computer. And so, or I'm in the computer somehow. Um, but, you know, earlier in my career, my first uh, job after college was at The Gap. And so that was really easy for her to understand because she's like, Gap, yeah, clothing, stores. Okay, I get that. And then a lot of the other places I've worked, she wasn't very familiar with. But, um, you know, for those places she war- was, she would just be immensely proud and wasn't really sure what I did, but was just happy that I had a job. Right. They're in the end, they're just happy that we're happy and we have jobs. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I want to go back to your past because um, you grew up in an interesting environment outside Philadelphia. Can you tell me a little bit about how your upbringing affected the way you see the world now? 
Yeah. You know, I was just talking about this with another one of my friends who's around my same age, and I'll just say in my mid-40s. And um, one of the things that we reflected on was that so many people in that like age group, a lot of my friends, we all became Asian American studies majors or had that as part of our kind of collegiate education. And when I started to reflect on that, I was, you know, the point I came to was it was so new and fresh because I didn't have that in my high school or elementary school education. Uh, I grew up, I grew up in an area outside of Philadelphia where the word wasp was invented. And, and so there weren't a lot of people who looked like me, but the ones that did, we were all in violin together and we were all in those like advanced classes together in the gifted program. And so for me, it was one of those very disorienting things. And I think, you know, when I got to college, that's why I became so interested in this theory and the thinking and all of that, which also later would precipitate like my interest in kind of marketing and like visual imagery and how that can really influence people. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you also were around other communities of color. That's right. Yeah. So I think like early on, um, you know, when I when we first immigrated to the U.S., we grew up in com- communities that we're um, pretty poor. And, you know, when we moved into central Pennsylvania, um, essentially my mom took on a job at a sweatshop. And back then we were probably one of the only Korean families to be living in central Pennsylvania near a lot of the manufacturing companies. And one of my earliest memories was that we moved into a largely African-American project. And I was, we were literally, it was kind of like all the quote unquote others lived together. And we were grouped together in this area because a lot of folks didn't know where we belonged and what our place was in culture or kind of in that community. And I even have these like early memories of um, our neighbors coming and, you know, we kind of all lived like very in in close network together. And I remember some of my earliest memories before I think I was like around four or so were people touching my hair because my hair was so different than the folks around me. And that was just really fascinating. So I just remember getting my hair combed a lot, maybe like a, a prized lap dog almost in terms of <laughs> people just being really fascinated by the texture of my hair. And to me, um, you know, that thread of kind of bonding with communities that feel underrepresented has really been something that I feel like is um, something that's motivated and interested me throughout my whole career. I think that's a beautiful experience because you felt different, but not bad about it. Would that be a correct assessment? I mean, I think at that age, yes. Um, But I will say, like, you know, in adolescence, feeling different is the worst thing possible, right? Mm -hmm. And you just want to fit in so badly. And I would say part of my own journey was at that time, like before I got to college, was really erasing who I was and, and having this different mindset of who I thought I was versus embracing who I really was at that moment. And and I think for me, that was one of the biggest awakenings I had when I got to college and what interested me so much in Asian American theory and kind of the journey of immigrants and um, having to live in basically two different cultures and how to navigate that. And, and so much of the work and the books I read at that moment, I, I think I just cried from joy because I felt like I was finally seeking like I fi- mm-hmm. finally felt seen and heard um, by these different authors. Yeah, I think it was in my Asian American psychology class. I learned the term biculturalism, and I remember thinking, "Oh, that's 
that's me. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And even like the words of my model minority back then. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, funnily enough, you know, I kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, there are a lot of us Asian American kids and violin and all the gifted classes, but the, the secret, the horrible secret about me was I was terrible at violin and piano. Um, and I had the last chair in violin. So much to the chagrin of my parents, I, I couldn't become that model minority. And I was also not great at math, but I was really great at sports and I was really great at literature and the arts. So um, that was something that, you know, at that time, I felt like I'm this weird misfit because I'm not good at these things that all my other like Asian American like student, uh, all the, my other um Colleagues, I guess, is a weird way to put it back then, but all the other students of my age. Yeah. How would you describe for folks who might be hearing it for the first time, what is the term model minority? Um, isn't that, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Isn't that a good thing to be a model minority? You know, yes and no, right? I think that, you know, the benefit of it is that it feels like a very positive sort of image that you know, these students were high achievers, they're really good at a lot of these grades, they're very studious, and they don't cause a lot of fuss, right? But I think the downside of that is something that we're seeing a lot in culture today, uh, something that I feel very passionate about, in that it feels okay to kind of discount our experience. It feels okay to say things like, go back to China. It feels mm-hmm. okay to call it the Chinese virus, because lar- like largely the Asian American cultures weren't known as being kind of vocal and fighting for our rights. And, and, what, and obviously that's a stereotype and I don't think that's true across the board, but I think there's that impression that it feels okay to marginalize our communities because we won't speak up and fight for ourselves. And, you know, I won't say the politician's name, but even this Asian American politician who kind of came out and said, you just need to act more like mainstream culture, which I think is exactly the wrong thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we see we see incidences of this um, about people kind of buying into that and wanting to assimilate so badly that they sometimes forget what their culture is. But I think, you know, that's a power of reflection and me being um, a bit older is that I no longer feel that. And I feel like if anything kind of, in my more recent years, I really embrace the differences. I really value um, the spiciness of our culture and food. And, mm-hmm. and that's something I'm proud of. And, you know, when I was eight, I was terribly embarrassed to bring kimchi or like kimbap, like little Korean dishes to school. But now I'm all about it. Right. And I'm all about sharing that with um, the people around me. Yeah. Um, I am actually a bad Korean American because I can't really eat spicy food, so kimchi is out of the equation. <laughs> we can't be friends then. Of <laughs> the watered down version, but uh, I, I want to ask: you know, did you have trouble speaking up? Um, you know, sometimes it's personality driven, sometimes it's culturally driven, sometimes you know it's environmentally driven. Um, did you have to to learn to be okay with being vocal? I did. And I will say that a lot of my career and like life was about assimilating, about like feeling like I was part of the US. And, you know, one of the most interesting things I've learned from, you know, one of my colleagues in Canada that I just love that she shared this with me about how Canada is different 
um, from the U.S., even though we're seemingly very similar, is she's like, you know, in the U.S., you guys talk a lot about being a melting pot, right? And all these cultures melt together. But she's like, in Canada, we talk about it as a mosaic where people still own their initial cultural identity. And it's not that we're all melting together, but you are like kind of who, how you grew up or where your family is from, if that's like part of who your identity is. And I just love that because I never thought about is actually a melting pot a negative or a positive. And so I think like thinking of it as a mosaic, I found to be quite empowering. Um, But, you know, back to your question about speaking up, I think, you know, whether it's gendered or it's kind of along ethnic lines, I think it's like, you know, we're taught not to speak up. We're taught to kind of take that direction. And it's kind of fighting against a lot of these things in terms of how you're raised and how we're cultured. And I have found it difficult. And I would say that like, until just recent years, I really haven't owned that a lot um, until maybe even the last five to 10 years of my career versus the early part. Yeah. So looking forward, you know, what is, what is your hope and how do you hope to play a role in, you know, minorities in media and advertising the way that, you know, we might see uh, more diversity even as people are searching for things on Pinterest. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I think um, I, I think about our founder, Ben, and, you know, when he talked a lot about how he thinks about Pinterest overall, one of the things that really resonated with me was when he said, if you want positive things to come out of the internet technology, they need to be deliberately engineered that way. And I just love that notion from everything from, you know, as we think about diversity and inclusion in terms of hiring and the people around you to how we do marketing and advertising, to how we think about the technology overall. And so, you know, first from like a diversity and hiring perspective, it is so important to have people of different backgrounds together building these products that the whole world uses, right? And when we think about a lot of these big technology platforms, their scale and impact covers almost the entire globe in terms of what they do. And having people with different voices to kind of share that is so important. Um, One of the other things I do love, and I always, I think of it as a Beyonce rule, and I just, I don't know if it's actually true, (laughs) because there are a lot of um, stories that this didn't actually happen, but the myth of the Beyonce rule for me was that, you know, I think back when she was expanding her Ivy Park uh, clothing line, she famously walked into a room with the sportswear brand, and then after they did the whole presentation, she walked out, because she didn't see anyone who represented her background she didn't see anyone who looked like her in that meeting. And I think that notion of being seen is so important, especially in our industry. I think I think CAN has this great program called See It, Be It, which is all about empowering female creatives in the industry. Because like the line that they said is, you can't be what you can't see, right? And so being able to have more people of diverse origin kind of in these positions of power are, are truly quite important. And then the creatives and the marketers that are kind of deciding what the creative looks like, it's important that we're representing different cultures, that the people that are in ads, the people who are in film, the people who are in TV shows represent what the world looks like. And I think overall, we're making a lot of progress. The progress is always too slow for me. But I think, you know, we live in a very different world today in terms of who we see on media 
than um, 10 years ago or even five years ago. Yeah. And we have to remember Beyonce's queendom was not built in a day. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So on the road to get there together, uh, Judy Leah Pinterest, thank you so much for sharing your voice with us. Thank you. And now we are joined with Michelle Lee. Michelle, thank you so much for spending some time with us at the end of your maternity leave. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. So I guess the first question I ask is, how are you doing as an Asian American during Asian Pacific American Heritage Month of this epic year of 2020? (laughs) Well, it's been an adventure for sure. Um, So... I, you know, looking back on my life, I feel like I've faced racism, especially in my younger years. Um, In middle school, I was bullied very badly for being Asian. I grew up in a very not diverse area. And so once I became an adult, I remember thinking, oh, things are so much better now. Thank God my kids won't necessarily have to deal with that. So it's especially crazy for me now to think about how far, I guess, things have fallen in the past couple of months. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you mentioned, I'm on maternity leave. So my older two kids are home from school. I've got the baby at home. And right at the start of when race relations for Asian Americans started to get really bad, I remember my husband and I started saying, we don't feel comfortable having our older two kids out, like walking or riding their bikes. And not just because of COVID, but because, you know, racist attacks and, you know, just the hostility had grown so badly. And we live in the suburbs. We live in a, actually a very diverse town, Um I would say maybe like 30% of it is actually Asian American. But still, I think that just the overall feeling out there right now, being Asian American, is not it's not a great feeling. Um, and it's very sad. And I think that, in again, in the past five years, I would say, I really made it my mission that because I dealt with so much racism when I was younger, I don't want anyone to ever have to feel that way. And it's not just Asian Americans. I think that it's super important for any of us who have a platform to make sure that we're using it to focus on and feature and celebrate diverse voices, to have representation. Um, So the fact that this has happened now is especially sad. Yeah. um, I know that I've seen your work, you know, as an editor in chief and really trying to um, have us rethink about, you know, certain stereotypes or images um, that we've always held um, from our past. And I wonder, you know, how much of your immigrant mentality is lived through your leadership and your strategy and your thinking process um, now? Sure. So I was actually, um, I never know what to call myself, whether I'm, I'm second generation or two and a half or one and a half. So my dad was born in China and my mom is Chinese, but she was born here. Um, so my dad, I always remember, he came over when he was in middle school and he used to say to my sister and I, you're going to have to work twice as hard because you're Asian and because you're women. And that has always stuck with me. So even though I myself am not an immigrant, I feel like I have that immigrant mentality in me. Um, I never realized it until I was fully an adult, though, how much being an Asian American truly helped to shape my identity. I think I had spent too many years, honestly, in my younger years, kind of denying my Asian Americanness. Um, mm-hmm. I think that because I had dealt with so much racism, in a weird way, it made me distance myself from being Asian, um, which seems so strange because you obviously can't change your face. Like people look at me and they say, obviously, she's Asian American. Um, but I never necessarily identified that way first, right? Like if you said, 
you know, how do you identify? It's like you're a woman first or you're Asian American. I feel like in the past five years now, I have fully leaned into being Asian American because I've now, I guess acceptance is a weird word, but I fully celebrate that being Asian American has helped me in so many ways and has helped to to define who I am, not only as a person, but as a leader, as an editor. Um, I used to be quite frustrated, I'm sure as all of us have been, that um, representation for Asian Americans in media and entertainment and just culture in general was severely lacking. And it still is. But in the past couple of years, I started to realize, well, why am I frustrated if I'm not doing anything about it? Then I'm actually part of the problem too. So within, I would say, the past four years or so, I really, since I've been at Allure, made it my mission to not only highlight Asian American voices, but to highlight a diverse range of voices. We were the first uh, mainstream magazine in the U.S. to put a woman in a hijab on the cover. We had a great cover a couple years ago that celebrated diversity. We had um, 41 women of color talking on the cover story about what it's like working in beauty um, as someone who is a minority. And I think that having that perspective on things of where I had readers reach out to me saying, I never thought I would see this. I never thought that I would see a monolid shoot in a mainstream publication. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so meaningful to me, the fact that we have the opportunity to shape culture. And that is huge. I think a lot of times people can chalk beauty and fashion up to, oh, it's very fluffy or whatever. But actually, when it comes to defining what is beautiful and what is acceptable and you know what is what is in the culture and what's hot right now that has such a huge lasting impact just thinking about when i was younger too right when i was younger it was all about the 90s supermodels and i'm sure you remember like heroin chic right there was <laughs> heroin chic with kate moss and like everyone wanted to be super super unhealthily skinny and you know have that whole look or the whole 90s supermodel look with very skinny brows And beauty helped to define what the look was, and it helped us to say, this is what I want to look like. Unfortunately, back then, no one looked like me. So I think that now that I have a platform, it's been very important to say, I want to make sure that everybody feels like they can be included. You mentioned that you were bullied. Did you feel beautiful growing up? And did your parents tell you you were and you might have not believed it? I 100% did not feel beautiful. Um, when I was bullied, one of the things that uh, one of the bullies used to say was he used to call me every single day on the school bus an ugly chink. And mm. so it was always very related to my appearance. So I grew up thinking that I was the ugliest duckling. And there was we were the only Asian-American family in town besides my best friend, um, Shalini, who is Indian-American. And so because looking out on the landscape of where I was growing up, I was the only person who looked like me besides my own family. I thought I was an alien. Like I thought I was just the weirdest looking person until then you open yourself up into this wider world and you realize you're not the, not a freak, first of all. And there's this huge world out there. But again, because I didn't find myself represented in media or entertainment either, I especially thought that I was the only one. And I remember actually um, there was like a stranger at some point in an elevator. I was with my mom when I was a kid and this stranger, this woman said, oh, what a beautiful little girl. And I remember thinking, I am not beautiful. Like I I didn't believe it if someone said that. And it's very sad to me. And again, I would never want anybody to feel that way. 
So it's been very important to me that every decision that we make has to come from a place of thinking, how do we make sure that people feel like they're not being excluded? Right. Yeah. The the idea of inclusivity is so much more important now. When did that turning point happen for you? When did the doors start to open when you went off to college or... Um, I remember, you know, watching the Joy Luck Club and um, being so amazed, even after, you know, reading the the book version um, that, wow, you can have an all Asian American cast and uh, we don't have to be token. And then going off to college and having really thoughtful discussions um, because I didn't even realize that if something was racially um, tinged or not. So for you, when did that start to shift? Was there another kind of elevator moment? Well, when I was 16, my dad got a job in Florida. So we moved from Connecticut, where it was very not diverse, to Florida, where it was much more diverse. So I think it started to come out of my shell a bit then. And then definitely in college, my mind opened up a bit more where I started to see the world is so much bigger than my own little teeny tiny microcosm. But to be totally honest with you, I hadn't really come into my own until probably within the past five years or so. And I've had so many conversations with other Asian Americans, especially in fashion and beauty, where we really all saw this turning point around the time of crazy rich Asians, Mm -hmm. Um, which sounds crazy, the fact that (laughs) that was not that long ago. But it made so many of us um, in the New York area, especially reach out to each other. And so we had had uh, Prabal Garang was actually super, super heavily involved in helping to create this screening for the movie among the whole Asian American fashion community. So that was like one of the important times where we all got together. But then even before that, I think that that was kind of the impetus to make a lot of us email, you know, someone who we hadn't met before in person and to say, hey, should we get lunch? Should we do coffee? Should we do this and that? And the community started to build from there. So even though I had I guess, sort of known some of these people just in passing, we really have now created this awesome community. And I feel like it's now spawned these other publications. There's Burdock Media, um, who I was just emailing with them the other day. There's Gold House. Like, There's so many organizations now that are saying, we want to help build this community. Um, I don't know if you know Allie Mackey also, who did Asian American Girl Club. Um, she started out making these cute t-shirts and she'd sent them to me, but it's kind of blossomed into this awesome community now where so many prominent people, but just also people in the community started to say, we want to get in on this too. Like we want to celebrate our culture together. Yeah. The, I love the, the ownership and the communities coming together and taking action. And I remember, you know, first of all, being surprised that Crazy Rich Asians was a rom-com. So everyone could enjoy it if you were into that genre. But, uh, you know, in New York specifically, I started seeing um, interracial relationships where there was a gender switch um, that, you know, Asian American men were dating, um, you know, non-Asian American women. Um, And I thought it was an interesting shift that I saw right before my eyes that was happening in New York when, you know, it's kind of more, I guess, normal or common in San Francisco. Um, So that was like, something interesting that I was seeing on the streets too. Well, it's, it's happening, but I will say there are a ton of places still in this country that are not as diverse as what we have on the coasts. And that's the thing that kind of bums me out, I guess, sometimes is that we sort of assume that everyone gets it, that we live in such a diverse area and everything else. But as we've seen with the rise in Asian hate crimes, um, 
I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding about our cultures. And that's when you start to see the rise of these old, nasty stereotypes coming back up again, where you all eat dog, or you all eat bats, or you all eat such weird things. And you would, you would hope that in 2020, people would understand that that's not the truth. But I think that because there's still such a lack of understanding and representation, there's still a huge amount of people who just don't get it. Yeah. There are different fears and stereotypes being amplified now, which is so sad. And um, there are also, you know, racial disparities in the amount that minority communities are being affected by COVID. Um, You know, I look at uh, layoffs um, and I look at, you know, when marketing budgets are cut, you know, how do we keep diversity front of mind? Do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it starts at the top, of course, and it comes with diverse hiring. I've definitely seen it firsthand that when you hire a diverse staff, it helps to create diverse content. You then, you know, diversity tends to breed more diversity. So I think it's really important for us to have diverse leadership and to make sure that if it's not there at your company, to make sure that you're pretty loud about it, that you want it. Because it's not necessarily that the whole top layer is going to change over right away, but we all need allies too. So -hmm. I think it's very important to make sure that your leadership at your company understands that diversity is absolutely key. That's sort of like more the the big picture thing, I think. But um, I've thought about this so much recently that in our culture, in a lot of Asian American cultures, um, it's sort of generational, I guess. It used to be this feeling of just put your head down and work hard, right? Like I'm of the generation of where I felt that way, of where I'm going to work hard and someone's going to recognize me. Don't be loud. Don't make noise. Don't make waves. And now I think within the younger generation, we're starting to see this more loud <laughs> loudness, which is awesome. And I love it. My hope though, is that I don't want this new rash of racism to push people back into the shadows again and to make people not be loud. So I think that as Asian Americans, it's not always super natural for us to be loud about things, but I think we have to be. If we see that there is disparity, those of us who are in positions of power have to be incredibly loud about it. Yeah. So I want to leave you with almost the last word of allowing, giving you a platform to be loud. Like what is the message you want to shout from the rooftop right now? Hmm. The message I want to shout from the rooftop is stop being racist. Um, I think that a lot of times we try and change the minds of racists. And I've come to believe that there is sometimes no changing their minds. But it's almost more important for us to recognize casual racism and to understand that it is a slippery slope. So all of us need to be loud and recognize that casual racism, even even though we think it might be harmless, is actually incredibly harmful because it leads to other things. So use your voice, um, be an ally. Those of us who are Asian Americans also, we need to be allies too. If we expect that other people are going to stand up for us, we have to make sure that we are standing up for every single other person out there who might feel like they're marginalized. So yeah, my message is really be loud. Great. Be loud and be an ally. Well, thank you, Michelle Lee, for spending some time with us and sharing your background and also your voice. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. And now we are joined with Bing Chen of Goldhouse. Bing, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Ko. Uh, we met actually in college at Penn. Two years um, ago. And I remember, yes, just only two years ago. Um, and I remember, um, you know, you were pretty active and, and visible in some of um, the campus groups and leadership. Um, I want to kind of reflect on that experience. Uh, what was it like for you then? Uh, I think embarrassing in hindsight. I mean, I think I think we all thought we were changing the world, but in hindsight, we were actually just trying to get a Jamba Juice in Commons, uh, which is which is my crowning achievement in student government the first years. Um, no, but I, I think I think like all college experiences that are productive, like it's a very evolutionary phase, right? Like you sort of uncover who you are and what you care about, and and all that sort of thing, and you think it's right, and then maybe a few years later you find it's wrong. But yeah, I think I would call it like a watering phase. Yeah, and and take us back to pre college. Um, what was it like growing up as an Asian American? Uh, so it was really undulative, to be honest. So I, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, as you know, and and we were one of two Asian families in in my area. So I actually didn't know, and I, I mean this sincerely, I didn't actually know I was Asian until I was ten, and when we moved to Shanghai, uh, and I, I was obviously given you know a billion reasons why I was definitely not Caucasian American. Um, but you know, being Asian in Shanghai is a very different thing because we were expats and that was the period in 97 where, you know, so many of the sort of new, uh, Western companies were, were coming into the country. Um, uh, and it was this weird, interesting, integrative sort of experience with, with locals. So, so that was interesting as well. Um, and then finally I spent high school in the OC in California, which is why I sound like an idiot. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, th- that too, <laughs> bro. Uh, but no, but, but but that too is you know obviously a very distinct experience because while there's deep density of Asians, there's also levels of racism, and but it's a certain type of racism, right? It's not it's not the overt obvious one where you know someone calls me a five letter word. Uh, it was much more you know latently. Um, so yeah, um, I think very different different places. Yeah, and, and that's interesting where the environment expects uh, affects your your outlook and your experience. Um, let's dive deeper into that kind of different kind of racism? What, what do you mean? And are there kind of maybe other examples you can share? Because I think, you know, a lot of people, um, I like to think about, you know, racism is not the same as ignorance. Yes. Um, but I like that you mentioned that there are also different kind of levels and types of racism. Yeah, I would say there, there's sort of three kinds in my own experience, and, and this is obviously not reflective of everyone's experience or, or you know, of the whole. Um, I'd say in Tennessee, I was just too young to to know whether there was any racism against me. I was also like a very happy, joyful kid. So like, what did I know? Um, and so I think I think actually the the lack of racism came from my own ignorance and naivete that it, it may have actually been imposed on me. I, I just didn't realize it. Uh, what I will say is I, I think a lot of, you know, the coastal cities give the South a really bad rap and just assume that, you know, everyone's a, a gun toting barbecuing, you know, in your face racist. And the reality is that's not the case at all. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I loved growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, it was a city where everyone, you know, gives each other sugar because that's what's what you do as a good neighbor. Everyone's so pure hearted. And, you know, for, for good or for bad, you know, at least in my experience, the way that people behave is not out of malice or out of some zero sum mentality. It's entirely just because of lack of exposure, you know, to certain things, no different from how people in the coastal cities are not exposed to many other things. So I, I think, again, my form of racism there was more out of my own naivete and not, not maybe recognizing it, but also even if I were to recognize it, I don't think it was an overt, you know, malice at all. Um, uh, fast forward to Shanghai, you know, a, a different form of sort of, um, I guess, racism understanding. Uh, I think, um, 
um, in, in this case, racism was much more latent. And I think this is actually the more dangerous form of racism. You know, if, if you, to strike the polarity that I felt in the Orange County, you know, if, if racism is in your face, five letter words, the beauty is at least it's targetable and identifiable. The problem mm. comes when it creeps in the shadows and when it creeps under people's breaths. And I, I feel like that's a little bit what happened in Shanghai. So, you know, for instance, it, it's, it's fairly widely known that the African diaspora has a lot of prejudice against it in China. I mean, everywhere, unfortunately, but especially in China. And, you know, we felt that from a day-to-day perspective, just in the way people would write off, you know, the black community and the way that, you know, they would see someone for the first time and, and, and want to take a picture with them, but it was done in a very exploitive, reductive way. Um, so I think that sort of latent racism that, that you know, it's not unique to obviously to one country is, is, is even more dangerous um, and something we have to be extra cautious about. Um, and then the final thing in, in that I experienced in Orange County, and, and this was by no means extensive, by the way, but, you know, in the few instances, you know, I, I remember I was at a movie theater one time and, and I was going to get popcorn because I love popcorn, as you know, and, uh, and the concession person asked me if I would like dumplings. And and by the way, th- there's no dumplings at the theater. Um, hmm. And anyway, I, I got that person fired because our friend from uh, from high school's brother was the manager of that that complex. So so we won. But you know that sort of racism is obviously overt. And I think that the challenge there is like it's so easy to be racist in so many places. And so I think when we see it, obviously we have to call it out twice as much. We have to educate each other on why it's not helpful. And in some cases, um, I, I think that empathy and education are not enough. And so in that case, I thought it was appropriate that that person be removed and they were indeed. Yeah. And, and to kind of, it's hard to educate people on, you know, why it's not a joke and why it's not funny um, because they are getting signals elsewhere, whether it's, you know, from, um, their own environment, right? That that's okay. And um, I struggle with this too on how to kind of approach situations like that. Um, it's tough, right? It's like it's like you, you're kind of in, I, and I, I don't know if you felt the same way, but my first reaction is always shock. Because, you know, right. I think we're, we're both very educated, right? We're around like, you know, high achieving people are very thoughtful and so forth. And so when it happens, it's sort of like, are people like this in the world still? You know, like this is 2020, you know, it's not 1962. And so I, I think, I think you're, you're almost silent at first, which, which obviously perpetuates a certain stereotype about our community unintentionally. Right. Um, and then the question is, what do you do? Cause I, I think the challenge is sometimes if you hit back, my mom often says, don't be the hero because the hero burns first. Like you could get in trouble you know, for something that you didn't instigate. And so it, it's, it's a tough situation. Um, yeah, I don't have a good answer. I don't think anyone does candidly. Um, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the place I draw the line is when existential, like, you know, I guess this is re- redundant, but when, when your existence is in question. So, you know, if someone, you know, says the N word, the reason that is highly problematic is because that word comes with levels of injustice, but, but ones that literally have led to the mortality of the black community, whether it's in, you know, slavery or otherwise, the re- reason that word is problematic is because it invokes that mortal wounding and therefore that word is unacceptable. And if you, you know, invoke that word, you know, you, you get rightful punishment. Um, and so in those cases, you know, I think the, 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 I don't want to call it a punishment, but the, uh, but I'll euphemize it as like the re-education needs to be a little more severe, but in other cases, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit tougher. And I think in, in, in the, the sort of softer grayer cases that, which is the majority of racist incidents, it's less clear what one does. Yeah. And before I go into why you are where you are now and what you're doing, um, I want, you know, the listeners to kind of follow along with, you know, what, what happened, um, 
pen? What did you decide to be, I guess, like when you quote unquote grew up and uh, how did you get to where you are now? Yeah. So um, my dream is always since I was a boy, just to make everyone else's dreams come true. Um, and it comes from a, an idea that, um, or the idea that that's not unique to me, but that, uh, that, you know, all we know is, is that we have one life here. We, we're not sure that heaven exists or, or the hell exists. And so, you know, what are we going to do while we're here on earth? And the best thing that you can give to others and give to yourself is more life. And, and in my mind, that life is a dream. And so I think in college, you know, before I got to college, I was really interested in politics and other arenas. But I think I quickly realized in college that the best way to deploy this is actually through culture. So it's through media, it's through entertainment, it's through technology, because those vehicles scale to more people and they're, they're, they're candidly, therefore, much more impactful. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I basically said I, w- I want to go be the next Walt Disney Oprah fuse together, and <laughs> we're going to try to build a big system that helps everyone realize their dreams through better worlds. And these worlds are, you know, powered by technology, but elevated by rituals, culture, media, stories, and so forth. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, as you know, I interned at Disney twice. You know, it was a great privilege. I learned so much about the sort of high art, sort of creative industry, and then and then went into tech and digital media to hone the other side. Yeah. And so now uh, you have founded uh, Gold House. What exactly is is the aim? And for someone who maybe is not, you know, in your community or has your experience, um, why is it important? Why is the mission so important? Yeah. So Gold House, I call my Batman job, as you know. So it's, it's sort of like <laughs> what I do in the shadows. It's, it's not my day job, but it's a, it's a meaningful amount of my time and it's become essential for the community. We are colloquially known as the Asian mafia. Um, we don't kill anyone, obviously, but but uh, we, we have the largest network of top Asian cultural leaders in the country. And we're dedicated to very simply uh, increasing the Asian standing in society as well as our impact. Um, our strategy is, is multifold, um, uh, but it all comes from the idea that Asians weren't thriving as much as our other minority counterparts, like the Israeli diaspora and like the African diaspora, because we weren't actually mutually supporting each other. Um, we realized that the first people to poo as it were, uh, Asians, you know, thriving were actually other Asians. And I think that's highly problematic. Um, and, you know, it's just not the way the world should work. We should be supporting each other in all ways, uh, you know, agnostic of your race, agnostic of your gender and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, so we basically convene a bunch of people who are way more senior, way smarter, way more successful than I am. Um, and uh, yeah, we came to a basically a four-pronged strategy. So the strategy is one, how do we create sort of transactional systems that enable people to invest in each other, both literally and figuratively? Second is how do we generate market demand, both for our creative and companies. Uh, third is how do we then invest in those creative and companies on the earlier side. And then finally, you know, we don't want to build a single islanded monolith, right? We, we want to build solutions that can really benefit 8 billion people, not just four and a half billion people, because that's the way the world works. And so we have a slate of different sort of unifying efforts that help to learn from and then also hopefully elevate other communities as well. Yeah, I just had a, a light bulb moment. And side note, I also love Oprah because yes, you do. Um, you just, you just think of her as, you know, um, this amazing queen and not, um, you know, based on any color of her skin, you just really think about, you know, her personality and her philanthropy and her, um, her empire of, you know, really tapping in and connecting, um, people to each other. So yes. that's something I admire about her. Um, and I just had the light bulb moment, uh, you know, when we were at Penn, there were these subgroups, you know, we had, Penn Philippine Association and Penn Hawaii Club, which you know I was a part of, um, but then we also had these like 
greater initiatives um, such as Asian Pacific American Leadership Initiative that was more of a collective. And then we had people like you who were, you know, um, part of student government and could represent um, a, a different kind of um, perspective. So that I think that just shows, you know, there's um, power in smaller communities, but also power in a unified voice and power in representation. Yeah, it definitely takes everyone. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, in good spirit of not poo-pooing others, you know, the the benefit of being broad is we can reach the masses. The problem with being broad is you can't go as specifically. And so, you know, you have to have specific efforts to be, you know, remind everyone and reinforce the purity of each ethnicity in our case, right? Um, because we are actually, you know, very distinct. Uh, we're not a monolith. Yeah. By the way, I uh, just want to note that even though you did spend part of your uh, growing up years in the OC, you are very well spoken. So I wouldn't poo poo your <laughs> California background. <laughs> yeah. But Co, you know, when English is not your first language, you have to try twice as hard at the language. Right? Yes, that's a theme that we've I've heard um, uh, across our speakers. You know, the idea that okay, if I'm a woman, if I'm um, a person of color, that I have to try twice as hard. And do you feel like you've definitely had to to do that and you have to keep doing that? I, I, I've never – so I've always worked twice as hard just because it, it, that's me and I'm just annoyingly excited, I think, about life and, and <laughs> things. But I, I've never felt because it was a chip on my shoulder, at least not overtly. Um, and I, I, to be honest, I don't know why. Because I, And I feel like – to be honest, I feel like I'm lying telling you this, you know. But I, I don't feel like I need to prove anything to any one individual other than maybe my mother who I really care about a lot. Um yeah, like you know, I'm just I'm just here trying to build new things that benefit as many people as possible, and and you know, a lot of that sort of dream of dreams, you know, dream. Um, but yeah, otherwise, like you know, I, I also have to recognize that, like you know, I come from a very privileged place. Like, I'm a man. I earn you know thirty cents more than you do. You know. Uh, which is on average, which is obviously not fair, right? Um, I, I also recognize that I am East Asian and well-educated. You know, my family comes from not a wealthy background, but but we're comfortable enough, you know? I'm not comfortable in the crazy rich Asians comfortable, uh, like comfortable, <laughs> comfortable, like middle-class comfortable. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, you know, that's a privileged place. And a lot of Asian ethnicities don't have that privilege, especially, you know, among Southeast Asians. You know, people think, you know, Asians have the highest, you know, average income per household, which, which is true at the aggregate level. But when you look at certain ethnicities, particularly, again, Southeast Asians, we actually have the lowest. And when you look at people who look like me, you know, who are like Chinese, Taiwanese in certain regions, we over-index in poverty lines. So, you know, in New York City, you know, about 50% of the Asians who live in poverty right now are actually mostly East Asian. Um, and so, yeah, so I, you know, my, my, my not feeling like I have to prove people absolutely comes from, you know, my parents get all credit, you know, from my parents' privilege, but um, yeah. Yeah. And, and just shows, you know, the differences and the disparity even within our own community. So, you know, we are not um, one, one stereotype at all. Um, but it is certainly a privilege uh, to be with you here, Bang Chen. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. No, thanks for having me, Ko. I want to leave with a final quote from Marvin Chow, VP of Global Marketing at Google. He wrote for us on adweek.com in our voice column, each of us must take the opportunity to think more broadly about what inclusiveness should look like among all identities and what active role we can play. Thank you so much for listening with an open mind. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that open role and open mind at podcast at adweek.com. This episode was edited by Elaine McGibney with theme music by home. Until next time, happy Asian Pacific American Heritage Month.
Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.